Education, bringing you a re-recording of a podcast I have with Kay McCarthy, and we tried to record this about I think a, two weeks ago. And I, being the brilliant podcast host uh, that I am, I never press record. So <laughs> we had this brilliant conversation, and we talked about this like disability sport at the collegiate level. Uh, what that looks like, and we talked about LeBron James, and we talked about all these things, probably the best podcast I've ever recorded in my life, and now we're going to reattempt it. Well, I, I don't know if we'll be able to, like, solve world peace again, but maybe we can try. Yes, yes. Have you ever, okay, to my podcast listeners, has anyone ever watched uh, Tenacious D? Yes. With Jack Black, they have yes. this tribute song. And the tribute, that's basically this is the tribute That's podcast. what we did. Yes, this we is made the, the tribute greatest podcast. podcast. <laughs> it's, we didn't record it, but we, it was the greatest song ever for Tenacious D. And this is the greatest podcast ever. So now we're doing the tribute podcast to the oh. previous podcast. That was the best. But we can as, remember how the greatest yeah. uh, podcast in the world went. <laughs> no. <laughs> this is all going to be on the podcast, okay? So... I appreciate you putting yourself out there like that. So uh, with all that though, yes. And uh, Kay can, can testify that I was mortified when uh, after an hour conversation, I went and I pressed, tried to go press the unrecord button and uh, it then started to record. Uh, <laughs> and so um, I apologize for that to Kay and I apologize for missing the, the greatest podcast of all time that would have solved world peace and adaptive physical activity and education would have been provided to all children with disabilities and with this podcast that we recorded. Um, so I apologize, we'll but we'll we're, we're doing a tribute to that podcast. So. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> with that, uh, you know, now I have a, already a great understanding from listening to UK from last time. Um, but for our listeners, can you tell us, begin by talking a little bit about yourself and your background and how you got started in the field of adapted physical activity? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for having me on again. I appreciate it. I always love, you know, being able to talk more about this stuff. Uh, I'm an external processor, so it always helps me to <laughs> talk it out loud. Um, but my name is Kay McCarty. Uh, I use she, her pronouns. And um, yeah, I am a PhD candidate at Oregon State University. I work with Megan McDonald. Um, and I started in Adapted because when I got my master's at San Diego State University, I was working at the Adaptive Fitness Clinic. And basically, after I graduated, I was so enamored with the program and I really liked what they were doing, but I felt like I could really help there. And so I kind of went to my boss and I was like, hey, you should hire me. <laughs> I wanna do all these things. I wanna work um, in the adaptive field. Um, I grew up, my mom experiences disability uh, and she had, she had polio when she was very young, was saved by the vaccine. Hashtag, please everyone get vaccinated. Um, and uh, 
seeing her go through kind of um, her fitness journey and finding that there were people around. Some people were wonderful. You know, they would really know how, how to adapt. They would work with her and, um, you know, it was, it was not a big deal. And some people I could tell she could kind of, she would come home and just not be as excited about the workout. You know, I, I, I wondered if she wasn't getting, you know, that, that same kind of dopamine response even, uh, from afterwards and, uh, realizing that there were certain people that wouldn't take the time to understand, you know, what she did. And, um, and so I, when I found this adaptive fitness clinic at San Diego State University, um, I was so excited to, I felt like I finally found kind of my niche, you know? And, uh, so I started working there and, um, it was lovely. I love working with students. It was definitely more of a, a rehab, uh, kind of feel. And, um, we trained students to work with the community, um, mostly adults. And it was during a process of, uh, I was kind of looking around and thinking, okay, we need to do this thing. We have this goal. I wonder if there are other programs that are connected to the university that I could ask around. And it just so happened that I saw the impact program at Oregon State. And I, to be totally honest, I'm not sure if I ever called anyone here or not, um, but it started me thinking and I saw that they had a PhD program for adaptive and, uh, or adaptive and, oh, and my dog is very excited about this. I don't know if you can hear her, but um, <laughs> she does get very excited when I talk about my journey. Um, <laughs> I saw that they had a PhD program for adaptive physical education uh, and activity. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that that could be a thing you could specialize in. So I applied for the program, got in, and now I'm here. Um, the other part of that that um, was kind of happening currently, yeah, in, in 2015, I went to a junior sports camp, and uh, it was for kiddos who have disabilities and are um, participating in sport. And it was really fun to volunteer. Um, and the, at the end of the week, I was there representing the fitness clinic. And so I had a San Diego State uh, University t-shirt on and a gal and her mom came up to me and they're like, oh, San Diego State, do y'all have a, an adaptive sports program? And I said, no, I, I don't think so, um, you know, but I'm not sure, but I guess, you know, I'm interested in this kind of stuff. So, you know, I'll just, I'll do some investigating. One thing led to another and soon I, here I am just like cold calling every program I can Google, you know, and wondering, first of all, I find that there's no program at San Diego State University. Then I find that there's no program in all of California. And then I find that there is no program in the entire, on the entire West Coast. And so I just started cold calling people and asking questions and what does your program look like? And what does it take to start one? And everyone was so wonderful. Uh, and they, all of them were just so supportive of the idea of there being a program on the West coast. So I thought, well, why don't I try to start it? <laughs> so, um, 
So a colleague of mine, Antoinette Domingo, and I uh, worked together and we got a couple of introductory grants. Uh, we secured an initial donor. You know, we got chairs. We started a student organization. Uh, and it wasn't until we recruited uh, Akil, who's now, I mean, he has taken the program beyond what I ever could have dreamed. It could, you know, uh, it's all, all of uh, he and now Antoinette's work is what's really doing it. Um, but they have a program now and it is still the only one in California. Um, and, you know, there's still so much that needs to be done with it. Uh, you know, there's so much support that needs to happen for it and, um, you know, barriers and, and things, but, but in, in either case, yeah, again, my dog is really excited about this stuff. Um, we, uh, basically, when I decided that I wanted to go get a PhD, it was what I wanted to do was see, was I the only one that experienced this? Are we the only program that has experienced this kind of, um, uh, this, it, it was, it was tough, you know, it's still tough, I think. Um, you, we get a lot of, yeah, like, hey, that sounds like such a good idea. Good luck with that, you know, and not really much support behind it. And so I wanted to find, are there, uh, are there easier routes? Are there better routes? Are there more supports? What can we do to make more programs happen so that it's not um, such a struggle every time? Absolutely. That, I mean, that's, that's kind of crazy that you started that in your undergrad program. And, and I know we didn't talk about that in the, the greatest podcast ever that we recorded, tried to record last time, but just a little bit more detail on exactly, is it like a fitness program as far as like people come in and they're working out? Is it sports related? Is it kind of all the above? Sure. Yeah. And I'm sorry, this was my uh, master's program. My, I did my undergrad uh, at uh, Oregon, or Oregon uh, Oakland University in Michigan. Uh, I was a communications and linguistics uh, major because I always tell people that I was a failed musical theater major. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> Um, but yeah, so at San Diego State, the fitness clinic is a, it's really a fitness clinic. It's, it's mostly, it's workout equipment. People come there. Um, we work oftentimes with folks, uh, physical therapists. There's a physical therapy program there as well. And we work with individuals. Um, I think the, when I was there, this might've changed, but when I was there, the majority of folks were recovering from stroke, um, mostly adults. And there were several folks with uh, cerebral palsy and, um, you know, it was mostly mobility, mobility, disabilities, and adults. And it was really just a place for folks to go to be social, to work out, to have this ability to have, uh, we had machines that um, not only kind of your standard uh, gym machines that would move aside the chair so that you could wheel up a wheelchair if you needed to. Well, we also had tons of guides. We had um, ACE bandages and, you know, kickboards that would help with posture. And we had standing frames and these sorts of things to get people up. And um, my, my, my favorite, um, my favorite training uh, was that I used to call it MacGyvering. So, you know, MacGyver's the like old 80s, I don't want to say old, the, the 80s star that, uh, you know, like we have to defuse a bomb and we only have three minutes, a paper clip and some duct tape. 
you know, and so I would always tell the students that, um, you know, oftentimes you would go to even PT clinics and they're doing the same thing. They're like, well, we don't have this special equipment, but we can make do with this ACE bandage and this, you know, cone that we have. Um, so it was really fun being able to teach students how to be truly adaptive and really just sort of fly by the seat of your pants and figure out a solution in real time. Um, and I think that's what, something that I love about adaptive in general um, and especially the experiential learning and student connected programs is that you really are throwing people in and going, all right, you've got, a, you've got your paper clip and your duct tape. What are we gonna do today? <laughs> so. I think that is, uh, I think that whole idea of you know, MacGyver, which I don't know if I could tell that to my undergrads now if they get the reference, but. I know, I always have uh, to explain it and have a picture of like, a big explosion. <laughs> yeah, <behind them. laughs> but um, I do think that, that that is like, yeah, a lot of creativity and a lot of, I think it's creativity and then, and then passion and motivation to do the work is, is a big indicator for the people that are successful in the field of adaptive physical activity um, overall. So, so Kate, um, your, your, a lot of your research, a lot of your background has been around disability sports at the collegiate level. And, um, you know, obviously right now we have the Paralympics that are beginning on uh, the Olympics just ended. Now we have the Paralympics and very exciting. Um, I think I last time I talked a little bit about a, a former guest, Jesse Hines. She's there right now. Uh, competing in the sport discus and she had a TikTok go viral I saw and she broke down the top five words to, to know while watching the Paralympics so yeah every, anyone on there google her she's got some really cool stuff and she's going to be competing very soon so there may be already competing uh, by the time that this is released. Paralympics though are obviously that's the pinnacle of a athlete's career in pretty much all all worlds and Obviously, we've talked in this podcast before about K-12 settings and trying to instill and, and provide opportunity, but we haven't really ever talked about disability sport at the collegiate level. So just to begin, can you talk a little bit about like the status, like what exists, what doesn't exist, what types of disability sport uh, things are there are at the collegiate level? Yeah, absolutely. Um, spoiler alert, there's not many. <laughs> so um, I, as part of my dissertation, that was what I was looking for is I, at least right now, I'm specifically looking at the intercollegiate level. So uh, really elite level things that would lead up to and do lead up to uh, Paralympic competition. Um, I think there are something like 20 athletes going to the Paralympics this year from um, University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign alone. Um, but they are one of the 16 programs that exist within the entire United States. Uh, and still the one at San Diego State is still the only one in California. Um, there are lots and lots of athletes who do compete. Um, and this is something I remember from the last time was there are lots of individuals who compete kind of at an individual level, but they are attending college. Maybe they're able to be on their team uh, if they're in an individual sport generally. Uh, there's others, but that data is a lot harder to find. Um, and I think those examples happen very frequently. Um, maybe not as frequent as I, as 
I would hope. Um, but also what I'm finding, the more I find out about it, those individuals who are competing on their collegiate team, um, you know, even without a kind of standard traditional program, oftentimes they are asked to compete. So they have access to the team, which is what the law states. You know, you have to have access to the team, but then when they go to compete, it's exhibition only. So their points aren't pointing or aren't counting towards the overall competition total. Um, and which is so interesting, right? It's such a fine little nuance. Yes, they have access to the team. Yes, they are training with the team, but their total, it's, it's, it's exhibition. And when I've talked to disabled athletes, oftentimes for them, they're like, I am so highly competitive. That's kind of just a slap in the face. You're going to let me be there, but then not let me compete, you know, in a, in a standard way that would make an impact on the team. So those examples, to be clear, I'm, I'm also not as familiar with. So I think anybody listening that has more information on that, for one, please feel free to contact me. I would love to chat with you about that. <laughs> um, uh, but my my expertise and what I'm looking at in huh, expertise, that's so silly. My uh, area that I'm looking at anyway is uh, more of the looking at universities that have a dedicated program that say, we are adaptive athletics and we recruit, we have a budget for, we have, uh, you know, positions where people are uh paid to be a coach or a program director for this thing and of those and those that that um, compete at an intercollegiate level there are 16. the most frequently uh seen sport is wheelchair basketball and of those i think it's about i think it's 12 of the 16 that i was able to find um though i think it's 12 I should have looked at my data like uh, before this, but if I can remember correctly, I think there are 12 men's teams and six women's teams. So it's also different um, even thinking about the, the, at least the binary gender gap, right? There, there is still a gap even within these adapted programs uh, for women to participate. And um, the next most frequent sport is tennis, wheelchair tennis. And both of these organizations play under specific uh, national rules. So the National Wheelchair Basketball Association uh, is this association um, that works with wheelchair basketball folks. And then the USTA, the uh, United States Tennis Association, is what the wheelchair tennis folks work with. So at the Paralympics, you're going to see a whole slew of sports that are beyond those. After that, at the collegiate level, the, um, the track and field, the cycling is probably maybe one of the bigger ones. Uh, wheelchair rugby is a big one. Um, there is ambul ambulatory track and field. And um, there's, you know, again, at the Paralympics, you're gonna see so much more. But at least within the US at the collegiate level, we're just not seeing the same type of sport diversity. And we're certainly not seeing the number of programs that would allow for folks to get to that pinnacle level. Um, I just read that for the Olympic team, 
there are, it was 75% of the Olympic athletes competed at the collegiate level. For the Paralympics, it's right, it's hovering right around 50%, but which is much bigger than I thought, to be honest. Um, but oftentimes those folks are individuals who go to college and are also in the Paralympics. Not that they're participating in a dedicated disability sport um, program. Yeah, and, and the Zesty Himes I was talking about, from what I know, I believe she's the only D1 scholarship athlete um, in for at least track and field uh, in the United States. Um, I believe that's one thing that she said. I don't know if that's for others. And that's, you know, another like question, a follow-up. Or do you see these things similarly with embedding people with disabilities within able-bodied sports at the collegiate level? Is that occurring at anything that's not just a participation trophy kind of thing where, you know, thanks for being on the sidelines like you were saying earlier? Yeah, that one I'm not totally sure of. I haven't looked into, um, into kind of that inclusion uh, model of sports. I've looked more at kind of a separate specifically put together programs, but all of the ones that I've talked to have at least tried to have some kind of scholarship money. Um, but what I'm finding too, is that most people who are the program directors, it's them hustling, you know? And it's just, it's maybe one, two people who are constantly hustling to try to get funding, to try to get money to not only fund things like wheelchairs, wheelchairs and um you know the space to practice and a coach that they can actually pay uh but then to be able to pay for the tuition waivers um or or what i saw most often was that they would be able to pay they would be able to subsidize tuition for out of state um out of state athletes to be able to have in-state tuition which can be huge at a lot of places um, but that also means that that might affect recruitment and, you know, are you recruiting the local folks from kind of your, uh, from your surrounding areas, which state schools are supposed to do, right? That's kind of one of the, the, the gigs about the state school is that it's supposed to help the local folks, the state. Um, and is that what they're able to do if the, the only thing that maybe they're, is within their power to be able to affect in terms of scholarship is to subsidize out-of-state tuition. Um, and again, this is something that I, it sounds like from what I've been hearing from folks, it sounds like this is the thing they were like, all right, we got one, you know, I got my university to agree to that one at least. So maybe now we can get more. And, you know, it's not a function of them being like, whatever, this is the best we can do. It's okay, we got this. So let's keep moving. <laughs> and Oh boy, yeah. I nobody hustles like a adaptive sport program director. You know, I, I I hear that a lot in my field about the passion. Sometimes I feel like that's a just as much of a detriment to our field that we rely so heavily on people that are the one percenters, you know, that are going to really go above and beyond. And because a lot of the people I know in my art field, I would I really think are exceptional um scholars or exceptional people or you know their, their work ethic their passion 
uh, is so high that the part of it then is how do we replicate it? Because if we're, you know, top five, 10% in this, like of the people that are really getting moving and shaking done, that's great, but not everyone is that. So it's how, how do we then, you know, I think you have a vision of trying to expand this greatly. So, you know, every university or most universities have these programs, but if we're only relying on these people that are not everyone <laughs> uh, and, and, their, and their framework or their formula to get this stuff is just go down every avenue you can. It's not a, you know, that's not a sustainable um, replicate. Like you can't replicate that very well. Mm-hmm. And I sometimes, and I see that in our whole field of physical activity, that, that the, the ones that are successful are because you have a person that's just dedicated their life to it. That's great that we have that. We need that. But we need a formula to roll this stuff out that it's not just, that we have a person that's going to like, you know, that those people that exist, but they're not everyone. So I guess in just that idea, like how do we get, how do we get these programs to be um, more widely accepted or explored by universities and and, and such? Well, I mean, well, listen, I, I want to go into academia. I believe in academia. And I also know that, you know, academia as a function of the way it 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 is uh folks with passion are an exploitable resource and i i think that's like you said i think that is a huge piece of our um our field and just working with you know the adaptive adapted adaptive you know it you're most of us are in it because we have some connection right is is my guess i i would go out on a limb and say I think most of us have some kind of close connection. If not, we've had some sort of um, transformational experience that has really drawn us to, you know, folks with disabilities. We might be part of the population ourselves, you know, like there's, we have some kind of tie, right? And because of that, we have passion. And also because of that, we are easily exploitable from the university standpoint. And, you know, how often, do universities use our programs as a way to get donors and show how, you know, how much diversity they're working on and, oh, look at these wonderful programs that we're doing. It's basically like a charity, um, but then they don't share that, that revenue with us, you know, or, or we do, we are not direct beneficiaries of that effort, right? Um, so it's very similar in what I'm finding in uh, the collegiate sports realm as well. You know, that is oftentimes the programs are run under some kind of academic unit. So my thought is that maybe it's more frequently someone who is already a professor. Um, and, you know, in, in many cases they are, and they are just someone who are not paid to be doing this program. It's sort of their, I, literally a couple of people called it their side hustle. Um, and they are working on this really in kind because maybe it's part of their service component as a, as a professor, but maybe it's not. Um, and those who have been able to create a position out of it 
are also very tied to, um, you know, making sure that, well, it's, it might be soft money funded, you know, that the university says, well, we'll give you a try. We'll give you three years, but you better produce. We're not going to give you any resources to help you produce, but you got to do it, you know? And so the, it's this really, you know, I, I hear that from a lot of folks where it's just this hard, they have such high expectations for the program and they want you to succeed, but they want you to figure out how to succeed completely on your own without any of the university resources, or it'll be here and there. Oh, well, we'll give you practice space. It'll be at, you know, seven in the morning or at 930 at night, but we'll give you the practice space, you know, and oh, why isn't your program succeeded? Oh, maybe because <laughs> university students don't want to wake up at 7 a.m.? Uh, I mean, some do, I think, you know, there's, especially with competitive programs that happens everywhere. Right. But anyway, I digress, <laughs> but, um, so one of the things that I'm, that I'm doing with my research is I agree. I think right now, what it looks like is the model is there is kind of a single champion who has the passion, has the drive and is charismatic and gets everybody in with them and is able to sort of pull together the resources and figure things out. But the problem is if they were to leave, is the university backing them? Will the university find someone to take their place? And that's, I, I'm not sure. Um, so but I think the, the goal is almost that we need like a doll, like a person that's able to be dull and do a 30 hour week thing 35 hour a week and it's still successful you know what right. i mean yes we don't need we don't have to have the a person that can also run for senator and is working 60 hours a week to make sure these programs are successful right. we should be able to let people that you know like like those should not have to be components of making this a success in my eyes yes agreed right it, it should be just this is a position that we do all the things and we got to make sure that it goes to everybody because HR has this thing, you know, yeah, it absolutely needs to be something that is, um, you know, institutionalized so that it won't die. Um, it's just not there yet. And yeah, so something that I'm kind of doing with my research is I am really excited about, um, about social movements and I am really seeing kind of what's coming out of, um, you know, even like LGBTQA plus um, folks coming in and talking about trans issues in sports and, um, you know, black indigenous and people of color coming together and looking at issues that are happening for black and brown athletes, right? And I think that we have that similar galvanizing you know, issue and base of people that could come together and really make this happen for disability, you know? And, but even beyond that, I think it's worth really looking into, you know, the most successful um, social movements are the ones that go across issues. You know, they have a similar thing that ties them together, but why don't we talk to, you know, um, to other groups that are already making these efforts, that are already trying to make these things happen, to make change, to do things, to accept more people, disability needs to be at the center of that. 
you know, and, and the last podcast that we, we talked about um, intersectionality and that's, that itself is an area I do think is an area for growth within the adapted um, PE and PA field. You know, I, I think we, we see disability, we see the oppression really, and we see that model there, but we need to reach out. We need to understand, see models from other places, look at other marginalized groups and band together, you know, know that the people that we're working with hold multiple identities, hold multiple oppressed identities. And, you know, being able to recognize those differences, see what's happening, gives us a better idea of the bigger issue and then allows us to reach across and go, okay, I work in disability. I'm still learning about critical race theory. Let's chat about it. You know, like, let's figure this out. How does this all work together? And, um, but especially with what's happening right now with like the NCAA, I think the NCAA is ripe for a reckoning. And uh, sorry, the, uh, let's see, National Collegiate Athlete Association. I think that's what it stands for. I think most people listening probably know what it is, but just in case. Um, it's the largest governing body for uh, collegiate sports. And, you know, it's, it's come under fire a lot lately for good reason. And so if, there, if we really want some kind of change to happen, if we want, if, you know, a lot of folks in the, in the disability community that are collegiate athletes that I spoke with want some kind of NCAA recognition, you know, they want the prestige, they want for their points to count, right? <laughs> I feel like that's asking so little. <laughs> um, but in order to make that happen, I think we need to get together with other groups. We need to start talking more um, and kind of come together so that we can build this coalition to make some kind of change and happen. You're talking about a lot of things, right? Like a lot of things that are kind of embedded in all this stuff. So as we talked about at the beginning, like we have talked about including disability sport K-12 curriculum in this podcast. But if you're talking about a sport that until they get to the collegiate level, they're basically have had no exposure to. And then like, that's a part of it too. And that they want them to be highly skilled at the collegiate level, I assume. Um, and so, but if they're not being exposed to it in the physical education or even extracurricular acting in the K-12, the expectation can't be that high. So to make a better you know, a better argument, we also need to have it, we need to, and, and just to even get people interested, we need to have those things at the, in the K-12 uh, arena as well. Another thing is um, Title IX, right, and we talked about that briefly last time, is that, does that apply to people with disabilities, and should it apply to people with disabilities that we need to have, the, to have similar uh, uh, funding opportunities for, for them to be successful. And I know there's maybe kind of different interpretations of that. What are your thoughts on how we can lay the ground for that argument to be successful? Yeah, so um, I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> so uh, Title IX uh, of the Education Act, right? Said on the basis, there, uh, you cannot discriminate on the basis of sex. And which is also interesting to be seen right now because uh, you know trans athlete issues and um, but basically so that was passed in 1973 
And it had a huge, profound impact for women playing in sport. Um, and a lot of the myth before was, oh, well, women probably don't want to participate in sports. Women don't like sports. And then it turns out that it was just a situation of if you build it, they will come, right? Um, they already had been coming. They'd been pounding down the door. So with disability, the interesting thing, and this is something that I've learned literally within the last week <laughs> or, or been more attuned to. So the so Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, that passed a year later. That was 1973. And it has very similar language to not discriminate on the basis of disability, and yet it did not have the same effect um, for athletes. Now, to be fair, Title IX doesn't really say anything about sports specifically. You know, it, it says kind of extracurricular. It has kind of that really broad language, just like Section 504. Um, so what's interesting, and, and I think that's kind of that might be uh, one of the directions where I take kind of future research is what happened? You know, why, why was there such a movement around sport specifically for women? And why did that same sport focus not happen for disability? Um, you know, of course I have some theories, right? There's high ableism just as there's he heavy sexism, right? And this, this thought that folks with disability can't or won't or don't want to participate in any kind of sport, whether it's, you know, fun or, well, whether it's recreational level to elite level. Um, but the reality is they obviously do. And we're in a situation right now where people have built it and they have come, right? Um, so I, I, I wonder with section 504 one, that's an interesting take that they have similar language, but they weren't, you know, but then the section 504 did not, take with the especially at the collegiate level right mm -hmm. um and i i wonder especially at the k-12 setting um ieps kind of trump and i'll say that i'll take back that word they trump uh, or, or they're bigger than section 504 plan right so they make the section 504 plan irrelevant for people with disabilities often times because they already hit all those things in the iep just thinking aloud, that is a very interesting perspective or point that you kind of raise that uh, Section 504 is not, even though very similar, and although it's, I think it's well known when you talk about academic accommodations, it's not talked about even though there are, is language in there about extracurriculars, and there's been a lot of dear colleague letters and so on and so forth about uh, Section 504, but it's not not you know not in the public light especially uh like title nine right well and even the dear colleague letter most of the language is around k through 12 uh competition and and play um but even then i wonder how many people look at that and they're like oh yeah we have to give kids with disabilities you know something to do something to be social you know and we'll just pat them on the back for this competition um but there's still that sort of undertone of but we don't expect anything. We don't, why would we go to the collegiate level if not only do we not expect them to have the mental capacity to reach the collegiate level, but to stay in the collegiate level, but then to be an athlete, like, come on, that's just unheard of, right? Which is just 
oh boy, just horseshit. <laughs> well, <laughs> sorry. And I think I think it gets complicated section five four because even when one of the dear colleagues, from my memory, it, it's about integrating people with disabilities. And I believe that there was a recommendation from a dear colleague letter to have separate sporting opportunities as well for people with disabilities. But what I remember in that dear colleague letter, and if Dr. Timison or someone's listening that knows this stuff really well, please correct me if I'm wrong, but it's a recommendation for separate sporting events for that are specific to people with disabilities. Right, so and if we even, know anything about the collegiate, you know, system, or really most of the systems in the U.S., if it's a recommendation, it's not happening. <laughs> yes, so. we we work in a, in a in a system of min, of the minimum standard that we want to mm-hmm. reach, um, which is not obviously good. <laughs> right. I mean, honestly, yeah. I've I've talked to some people that believe that the only way that we would get more collegiate opportunities is to sue. You know, to have some kind of large civil case and have something happen like that um you know and but and that's another thing that I I think I would like to look more into but my understanding is that a lot of you know a lot of civil rights especially for black folks in the U.S. have happened because there has been someone who sued or there was some kind of court case right um and so is that the route we need to go I you know we have know. Tatani McFadden, right? Who's like right. kind of the the known entity, um, you know, in, in this world. Uh, and, and she sued, obviously, about, I think, in, you know, early 2010s or something and, and won and, and made sure that she was recognized by, by the Track and Field Association and got her letter and so on and so forth, um, which that to me is one of the biggest pinnacle things. I mean, we can go down that route too about lawsuits. I, I totally think they're necessary, but recently, Dr. Mitchell Yell and I uh, and, and Angela Prince, who's University of South Carolina and Iowa State University, we just did a paper where we looked at court cases that had to do with adaptive physical education. We found about somewhere almost to the 30 range, one in which a child died from improper aquatics training from the, from the, um, the teachers. Even when these court cases occur that are kind of significant, we don't end up knowing about them still. Mm-hmm. So it's still this, even when they do happen, it's, we have to then get on a podcast. And right. <laughs> that's well, and bigger again, than mine. <laughs> like, I, again, I think like this is the kind of thing that, you know, like this, this kind of stuff has always happened and continues to happen in other you know, marginalized communities. Disability is just one that I, I think maybe now folks are starting to actually recognize and know that there was just as much of a movement um, in the 60s as there was with every other, um, you know, with the other civil rights kind of movements. Yeah. Um, but I, and, I think we still, t- the public still takes on that charity mindset yeah. much more than they would with other groups when we talk about disability too. Um, I'm sure when you talk to your family members or, or friends that are not in our field and you talk about disability, oftentimes the tone is, what a champion you are, how right. amazing you are to work with these people. Uh, you know, la- last time we talked about, we went down that hole about talking about inspiration porn mm-hmm. and how our athletes sometimes are, are just put on for, you know, inspiration and seen as this 
um, you know, like, yeah, like that, we put them up there and we're like, oh man, look how amazing that person is for doing maybe something extraordinary, but maybe not something extraordinary, but just the fact that they're a person with a disability moving for some reason, a lot of people then have to reshare it on Facebook and say, isn't that awesome? <laughs> Which is exactly why we're able to get access, you know, those, those athletes are able to get access to the team, but they're still exhibition. And that part is always put, put under, you know, put under the rug. Um, and to be fair, I think that there is plenty of kind of that paternalistic uh, attitude towards, you know, certainly black and brown folks. Like last time we were talking about LeBron James, he's very, uh, he's very loudly somebody who came from a, um, you know, uh, underserved neighborhood and in Cleveland. And then now is this huge star and like, oh, I would, I would, you know, I know there are people who are like, oh, LeBron James, look at you. Like, what a wonderful story you have, right? So there, there really are those, those similar narratives. Um, but yeah, but I, I think you're right with disability. It's still, um, it's, that is the heart of the narrative. And that's the problem. Yeah. And, and we did, last time we did go through this whole thing. And I think we're running a little bit short on time this time, but like, uh, we did go through this whole thing last time about how I struggle personally with inspiration porn, where we're kind of exploiting versus I think sometimes it is okay to be inspired by somebody. However, but I think you're, you're like, because we're talking to someone like LeBron James, right, who is uh, from a black and brown community and has all has a story of oppression that he's overcome, right? that we kind of intertwine into it, but his athletic um, achievements stand like, uh, uh, like for someone like that are inspirational, I think. Not even just the height of it, or when we see, and, and I, I brought up, I have colleagues in, in our field that I get inspired from their achievements. I think inspiration's good, and I think we can get it from people that are exceptional. I think then, and, and I, I remember you putting it in a really good way, so I hope to follow up with this, but it's when, it's when we, yeah, it's like when we're, um, we're not understanding the community and the person and, and, and their achievements, but I, I think that there's, and when we're also not exploiting people and using them to benefit Nike or whatever it is, um, I remember that commercial for Nike, uh, with a person with a disability and be like, you know, that's a company trying to make money <laughs> that right. grosses me out, man. Right. But, and, um, and are you using, it's, it's how you're using the story, right? You're absolutely right. Yeah. I mean, I think you can be inspired by anybody and, um, and we are right. Um, I've talked to many, many Paralympians who are like, no, it's, it's amazing. I love having kids come up to me and say, I didn't know that somebody like me could do this. And now I know I can, so I'm going to go do it. You know, like that's incredible. Right. And, and those stories of sort of, I hate using this word, but like this overcome narrative, right. That is a thing. That's still a huge thing that matters. But like you said, it's when there's the overuse of the word, like, despite this thing or overcoming these obstacles, or it's the assumption that by simply having a disability, you have something to overcome, which 
is both true because societally we make it so, but also is, you know, I, I, I feel like those narratives also aren't asking the athlete, like, do you feel like you really overcame stuff? You know, some folks are, yeah, of course, I had a lot of things I have to work with, blah, blah. some are like, nah, like I get up, I do the same things everybody else does. Like, no, I work just as hard as everybody else. And that wasn't a problem for me, you know? And so it's centering, centering that person, centering that person's voice to and then figure out whether they using their language. That's the other thing is I, I think if you call it an inspiration because you've decided it is, then maybe that's a problem. There's a lot of things, obviously, all wrapped up in this. We're talking about the importance of representation when we're doing, all, like, putting people on a platform. We're talking about why will we put somebody on a platform? Mm-hmm. And is it for, what? what's the purposes of it? I also, I think it's very important to know that community and the, that person and, and to know their, because I think there's assumptions made when we're doing these things, like assumptions of poverty um, mm-hmm. or assumptions of, yeah, like, you know, just getting pushed down or forgotten or something that maybe have never occurred for that person that we're making that assumption based. But obviously those, I I think that the idea of inspiration form in it by itself is a very interesting topic uh, and something I'd like to know more about. Um, But Kay, I really appreciate you being on the podcast. We do need to wrap up. And I just want to ask you one last question. It's a big question. So we'll try to be concise, but (laughs) where, where would you in the next five years like to see the world of disability sport at the collegiate level go? So I think I talked a little bit about this last time. I am personally at a bit of a crossroads. Right now, particularly with conversations around policing and carceral systems in the United States, there's a lot of a, uh, there's a, a big narrative around whether we abolish these things or continue to reform them. And I see that 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 same thought, that same uh, discussion can and should be happening within the NCAA. Um, I think it already is, right? Um, I just, I'm not sure I'm not sure how frequent it is in the disability community right now. And, and maybe it's just, I haven't talked to the right people, right? There's some people who've been researching this for a million years. I'm just coming in and being swept up by the waves still. Um, but so my, my understanding, so one thing that I, um, I, I think I'm supposed to mention, but also I like to mention, uh, so I am, I am, a health policy research scholar through the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. And through that, something that I have really learned is thinking about health, thinking about policy and thinking thinking things a little differently. This last summer institute that we had a few weeks ago, our entire panels, we had, we had days of panels of um, folks talking about abolition, what that looks like, and how to reimagine systems that are better. And this is something that I've been thinking about a long time, but something that someone said in there, I think it was Julian Thompson, uh, was one of our panelists, and I, I'm pretty sure it was him that said something to the effect of abolition isn't about just destroying a thing, you know, and then, you know, then what do we do, right? Just like being gone away with it. 
it's about it's about building something better such that the thing that currently exists becomes obsolete. So I am kind of struck in this place where I see a lot of program directors, a lot of athletes at the collegiate level who talk about the NCAA. They talk about the prestige that, that could come with it and wanting to base their programs, their models around that. But with Title IX reaching its 50th year next year, you know, 50th anniversary of Title IX next year, and that's the reform model. And though that has done so much, so much for so many women, it's still incomplete. We've basically gone from access to like now you have access and now we're trying to make sure that you don't get sexually harassed or uh, accosted, right? Kind of a low bar. <laughs> um, and so is that reform model really working? Is our current system of disability work really working? Is the NCAA ever going to fully accept disabled athletes in the way that they deserve? And I don't know. And so is there, you know, kind of going back to that, that movement of bringing together different groups of folks who are already working around this issue. This is not a new concept, right? Like I am not the first person to think this. Um, so how do we get connected with folks who are already on this line, who have already done this research, who are already doing these movements and say, yep, disabilities with you, you know, and can we come together to create something that's better such that it just makes the NCAA obsolete. I think that's huge. That is, I think you said five years, that is not the next five years. <laughs> um, you know, I, I don't know how long that would even take, um, but I, I just, like I said, I think for me personally, wondering about the future of adaptive sports and sort of just sports in general in the US, um, I am, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what the best model is, but I know right now isn't working. And I, I don't know where I'm at with wondering whether, again, whether disabled athletes are ever gonna really get everything that they deserve. Well said. Uh, you know, I think that's a profound thought about abolitionists and not just tearing everything down, uh, you know, I, I mean, let's be fair. It's also, sorry, I, I might've misspoke a little. It's definitely about tearing everything down and burning it to the ground, right? Yes. Yes. <laughs> but it's when you have something better in its place with, with the voices of the folks who will benefit the most at the center. Sure, sure. I guess the question is, is like, is it, do you burn it down first or mm. do you create the thing first? I don't, um, I'm, still, I'm still learning. Yeah, no, um, because that's, you know, and as I said, I think that the idea of abolitionist kind of things of the burning down has become a little scarier to me as having a 15 month old at the moment. And I think about, you know, I just, I need stuff for her to do. I need her to be successful right now, you know? Uh, and so, the, you know, this idea of burning things down and having kind of probably a little bit of chaos in between mm -hmm. uh, those systems is a scary. Um, so I, I like that idea though of creating something better and kind of, you know, and then almost naturally those old systems, uh, or at least that would be the idea, 
because obviously there's a lot of power in those old systems too, mm-hmm. but that they, uh, that it, that it changes. Okay. I really appreciate having you on here a second time for a <laughs> podcast. It does say recording, so we're good. I really appreciate you. And thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah. Thank you so much for making the time twice for me. Wow. That's very, I feel very honored. So thank you for that. Thanks for other way around. Thank you.